All right. Gospel of John. The Gospel of John. Now, I, I did not think at all about this. I mentioned this in the first hour. Now that we've canceled the internet here, um, I, I immediately realized, oh no, I can't use a lot of things that I typically use. So a lot of times I have you look things up. So you're not going to be able to do some of those things. So if I, if I for some reason forget, I'm like, hey, everyone, gra- yeah, we're going to have to go back to physical books. If I'm like, hey, look up the Blue Letter Bible app, other than those who can get signal out here. But um, if you can, then I'll, I'll have someone look something up. But I'm going to try not to do that. But if I, if I fall back into that uh, practice, well, um, I'll have to, you'll just have to tell me. All right. So here's what we're going to do. This morning, here's what we're going to do. The last hour, we looked at the uh, the Old Testament reading for today, which is uh, Exodus chapter 20, and I'll have that uploaded uh, when I get home. I'll upload all of the messages. But here's what happened. On, I don't, was it last? I guess it was last Friday. Thursday night going into Friday. So what I typically do is Thursday night at 11 p.m., I have all of the music streaming services open and I start looking at every new album that is released and sometimes I stay up half the night trying to listen to every new release. So I'm going through all the new music, going through all the new music, new music. And I think it ended up, I, by looking at the new albums, a lot of times some of the services were like, well, if you like this one, here's some others to check out, right? So then it took me, I think, back to an album that was released in January. So there was an album released in January by the heavy metal band Saxon. All right. And the name of the album was Hell Fire Damnation. All right. Which is not uncommon for metal bands to utilize religious imagery. They've been doing it since, well, forever. Okay. So, all right. So I'm like, okay, let me listen to, uh, I think the first track is like this, like spoken kind of intro. And then the, the, the title track is Hell Fire and Damnation. And immediately in it, it begins to kind of, tell this story of this eternal battle between God and Satan, and we're caught in the middle of this battle, and who's going to win? And so it just kind of got me thinking along the whole subject. So I think it was, I don't remember which day, I did a podcast episode called Heavy Metal Theology. And in it, I challenged everyone to kind of make a list of, of all the things Satan can actually do. Right, because the way the song described it, it may have been giving Satan more ability than he actually possessed. So I'm like, okay, here's the challenge for everyone. So that was kind of the assignment. I, I was going to kind of move on. I did the episode, Heavy Metal Theology. I kind of, t- okay, whatever. So I was kind of done and moved on. Well, then someone emailed me, one of the listeners, and said, hey, I found this sermon. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's great. Found a sermon. Because this year we're doing the Sermons 2.0 app challenge. So they're like, here's the sermon I found. And I'm like, okay, what is the name of it? Name of the sermon was How Satan Gets in Your Head. How Satan Gets in Your Head. And I'm like, okay, that sounds like an interesting title. Well, I know what I'll do. I'll do a sermon review because I do that all the time on the podcast. And when I do a sermon review, the rule is I don't listen to it. Before I do the review, because if I listen to it before I do a review, then it's like I'm trying to find a bad sermon, and then I'm kind of rehearsing what I'm going to say, and then it's all produced, and it's more, I don't like doing that, right? The way I always do my sermon reviews is I want it to be that I'm doing it in real time and reacting to it in real time. Now, there's good about that, and there's bad. 
The good is it comes across much more organic. It doesn't feel like it's rehearsed. It doesn't feel like I'm just trying to find a bad sermon so that I can bash someone, right? Because that, that, that kind of gives the wrong idea. It's supposed to be more like, hey, I'm going to listen to a sermon. Let's listen to it together. And then we'll, I'll stop, pause, analyze, critique, and we'll, we'll see what we can get from it, right? Maybe good, maybe bad. The bad part is sometimes by the time I'm done, I'm kind of like, I don't even know what to say because sometimes it, and sometimes the name of the sermon and the text, the scripture, they don't ever get to the actual text of scripture. And so then you're kind of like, I don't even know what that was. So it, 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 sometimes it can turn into a train wreck, right? So I didn't know exactly what I was prepared for, but I started reviewing the sermon, how Satan gets into your head. And it's, it took me four plus hours to review the sermon, almost five hours to review the sermon over four, I think four parts. And by the time the sermon review was over, I was at the liquor store buying as much because I, okay, not literally, okay, but metaphorically, because I was like, what did I just hear? It was madness. It was complete madness. It was just, I don't even know where to begin, right? And I'm not going to go back and review it all. Let's just say it was, it was difficult to process everything that happened there. And some really, so to me, some really damaging things because it, because it was also just, it was not correct even in how the brain works. It wasn't correct about how thoughts and emotions work. Like he doesn't even know basic medical and neurological information about the brain and, and behavior. Like he, he just had basic information wrong, right? And so it can be very detrimental to people listening to it. But it was a very popular sermon. It already had like 32, 34, 35,000 downloads and streams, which sometimes the popular ones are the ones that are most troubling to me, right? So I, I took it apart. But in the sermon, his text was 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Now, I know I told you to go to the Gospel of John, have it marked, but go ahead and go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We're gonna, this is going to be a... It's going to be a fun ride this morning. We'll see what what's going to, we can accomplish here, all right? 2 Corinthians chapter 10, because this was a major part of the sermon that really ticked me off a little bit, all right? 2 Corinthians chapter 10. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. Everybody ready? Remember, the name of the sermon was what? How Satan gets into your head. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. All right, that, that, has, things, that has things talking about our thinking, our thoughts, right? Our, our ideas. Now, do you notice anything interesting about those verses? Do you see anything interesting? What is the name of the certain uh, the name of the sermon? How Satan gets into your head. What is interesting that that's the text of that sermon? Well, what's interesting is something is missing. What's missing? Satan is not mentioned. What's the name of the sermon? 
how Satan gets into your head. What's the text of Scripture? 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. And who's not there? Satan. All right, so that, that's the first thing. Is it interesting? Now, do this, okay? Look at the whole chapter. Just skim 2 Corinthians 10. Just yeah, just look at the look at the text. Just look at all Second Corinthians ten. Skim it. Yeah, Second Corinthians ten. Right, skim it. Yeah, yeah. How many verses in the chapter? Eighteen. See Satan in those eighteen verses. No. Okay. Go to uh, go to chapter uh, eight, or go to chapter nine. Go to chapter nine. How many verses in chapter nine? Fifteen. Skim them. Tell me if you see Satan. No, no Satan. So. Chapter 10, he's not there. Chapter 9, how about chapter 8? How many, how many verses in chapter 8? 24. Okay, it may take you a little longer to skim them. Making y'all do the work, that's okay. Okay, do what? Okay, don't believe that he's there, all right? How about chapter 7? How many verses in chapter 7? 16. Okay, all right, well, okay, yeah, well, I want you to skim them, but yeah, we're going we're gonna to look at a couple of passages, but, all right? So chapter 7? No, chapter 6. I'll just go through them. Chapter 6? No. Chapter 5? No, chapter 4, possible. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. This ver- Look at 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Yeah, the verse discusses how the God of this world, often interpreted as a reference to Satan, blinds the minds of unbelievers, preventing them from seeing the light of the gospel. All right, there's chapter 4. Okay, all right. That would, go, that would go a little bit better with the sermon, possibly, right? All right, there's chapter 4. All right, chapter 3. I don't think there's anything there. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. Oh, there's Satan's schemes, right? There's Satan's schemes. Do we see that? All right, so he's in chapter 2, chapter 1. He's not there. If you go to chapter 12, he possibly shows there because there's a messenger of Satan sent to torment him. Right? Everybody see that? 2 Corinthians 12, 7? Okay. Oh, and 11, 11, 14, right? Yeah, 11, 14. All right. And so 2 Corinthians 11, 14. So here's what we have. 2 Corinthians 2, 11. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. 2 Corinthians 11, 14 through 15. And 2 Corinthians 12, 7. Those are the places he shows up. He does not show up in chapter 10. In fact, you have to go all the way back to where? You have to go all the way back to chapter 4 before Satan shows up. So that means, wait a minute, how is he going to get Satan in chapter 10? How is he going to get him there? Now, he could go back to 
2 Corinthians 4. He could go back to uh, 2 Corinthians 2. He could jump to chapter 12. There's a couple of places he could go to to pull Satan over. But he decides not to do that. To get Satan to 2 Corinthians 10, guess where he goes? Well, I've kind of given it away. He goes to the Gospel of John. He goes to the Gospel of John. And guess where he's going to go in the Gospel of John to get Satan, to find Satan? He's going to go to the famous, famous passage. John chapter 10, verse 10. John chapter 10, verse 10. Everybody ready? John 10, 10. We read these words. The thief cometh not, but for to steal, to kill, and destroy. I come that they might have life, and they might have it more abundantly. So he runs to John 10, 10. He grabs Satan. He's like, you're going to come with me. Take my hand. Let's walk over to 2 Corinthians 10. Satan gets into your head. He gets into your head. And guess what he does when he gets into your head? He seeks to... Read the verse. Kill, steal, and destroy. And Satan can get so into your head that he renders you powerless. He can get so into your head that he enslaves you for his purpose. Oh, that preach is good. Now, are you ready for the controversial? You come to Victory Baptist Church because we don't do things like any other church. I'm about to make a statement that will disagree with probably every church in Abilene, Texas. Probably I'm going to make a statement that's going to disagree with every church in Ovalo, Texas, in Tuscola, Texas. I'm going to disagree with most of the churches of anybody who listens to us online. John 10.10 is not about Satan. That's my hypothesis. So, you know what we're going to do then? I'm putting forth a hypothesis. What is my hypothesis? John 10, 10 is not about Satan. So for him to go to John 10, 10, grab Satan and bring him over to 2 Corinthians 10, first of all, that's already hermeneutically questionable. But second, he's grabbing Satan where Satan doesn't exist. Now, if you don't believe me, in fact, well, probably your church friends are in church right now. You should text your church friends who are in church right now and ask them, is John 10, 10 about Satan? And they're all going to text you back and almost uh, without fail are going to say... Yes. And I'm going to say every single one of them are wrong. And they could ask their pastor. And their pastor is going to say yes. And I'm going to say their pastor is wrong. I'm going to say everyone's wrong. Historically, no one thought it was about Satan. Until you get to like the 1800s. And it started showing up in some Sunday school curriculum. Okay? Probably America, right? I, I know the name of the person where it supposedly started. I can't pronounce it. But oh, I don't want to get into all the history. But the church fathers did not think it was. But oh, who cares? Because nobody in church cares about church history. This is the common thing where we hear something. And, get, and I, let me state this again. So much of your interpretation of Scripture is not interpreting Scripture. You're simply rehashing what you have been told. That's why I cannot state this I've got to, I cannot be more dogmatic than this. Are you ready for this? Your past understanding should never be used in your present study. Past understanding is of what value? None. 
Because past understanding, if incorrect, if you rely it on in the present, you're simply doing what? You're continuing with the error. How, how will you ever know if you're in error unless you continue to do what? Study, 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 study. You have to keep studying. So I put forth my hypotheses. Now, you know how this works. If you disagree with me, I, look, I, I know people always think that this is not true. I really don't care if you disagree with me. Believe whatever you want, right? That's, that's the one thing I've kind of always tried to do in this church, right? You can do what you want. I don't really care. Right? But people still sometimes want to argue with me and somehow prove me out. Do what you want. I don't care, right? That's fine. But I'm still going to put forth my hypotheses because I'm the one standing behind the pulpit, right? So I'm going to put forth my hypotheses and I'm going to do my best to do what? To prove it. So are we ready? That's what we're going to try to do. Now, I may, now please note, before, in the middle of this, I may convince myself that I'm wrong and then that, my, that it is Satan, okay? I'm more than willing to, we know I'm willing to change my mind in the middle of a sermon, right? Okay, so here we go. Are you ready? All right. So we're going to take this apart and here we go, all right? So first of all, look at John 10, 10 and tell me what's the first thing you notice. Just look at John 10, 10. Just kind of look around it. Okay. All right. Oh, that's a good point. All right. So for those who have a red letter edition, John 10, 10 is in the middle of a long section that's all in red. All right. Meaning John 10, 10 falls into the middle of a, we could call it a discourse. And we could call it in the middle of a speech. We could call it in the middle of Jesus, obviously speaking. It's the words of Jesus. All right, but it's in the middle of it. Where did those, if you have a red letter edition, where did those red letters go all the way back to? Okay, go all the way back to 941. But if we want to, we we can get into the chapter division in a minute. It at least goes back to the beginning of chapter 10. And where do the red words stop in chapter 10? I think there's there's one verse where it kind of stops for a second and then he goes right back, right? So basically, a good portion of the chapter is what? Red. Meaning that this is a part of a longer discourse. Now, now, let, let's just, now, I'm not going to ask husbands because husbands are probably bad at doing this, but I think we can all, I know, I know as, a, as, a, as, as a person, not as a husband, but as a person, if I'm talking to someone, and let's say I talk for six minutes, I know this as a pastor, I can preach for 45 minutes. I can preach for 50 minutes. Say, who knows how many words? In many cases, someone will say, well, you said this, and then draw some conclusion. I'm like, did you listen to anything that I actually said? You grabbed onto one thing and came to this conclusion. But the beginning, the end, would told you that your conclusion is wrong. Nobody likes when someone does that to you, do they? You get, I mean, frustrating is not even the, sometimes I, I, I just want to scream, right? Because someone, like, especially as a preacher, you're like, so you, you, that was the conclusion for my 45-minute sermon. So you obviously missed everything that I said. Everything. And that, that, I mean, you don't even know how, like, 
You, you can just, you can just want to retire right then on the spot. But forget being a preacher. You know that in your own life, right? If you're sitting there trying to talk and then someone says, you said this. And you're like, did you hear anything else that I said? So I think that since it's Jesus, we owe him a little bit of respect to not just grab the words from verse 10 and just impose a meaning. We got to figure out what he said before it, maybe after it. We got to figure everything out. Do we think we can agree? All right. Now, uh, if you look at, in fact, I'm going to grab my Bible here and go to John 10, 10. If you look at verse 7, how does verse 7 begin? Then said, seemingly that this is a continuation of something, right? So 10, 10 is in the middle of a dialogue. 7 is then, as he's continuing something. So then if we go back, we can at least go back to verse 1, right? Now, once we get back to verse 1, let me make it very clear. There isn't agreement on the chapter division. There is disagreement on the chapter division. I hate that. I wish there was an agreement. What, so let's at least do this. When we come to a, a, a chapter division, what can we dogmatically assert? Everyone in this room, what can you dogmatically assert? They were, not in the they were not in the original. We can dogmatically assert that. Meaning that maybe it's a continuation in thought. Maybe it's a continuation in dialogue. Maybe it's something completely separate. We don't know. Let me read to you different perspectives. Are you ready? Here are two perspectives on the chapter division of John chapter 10. In the Gospel of John, chapter 10 is not a direct continuation of chapter 9 in terms of continuing a single narrative story. Instead, chapter 10 contains a new discourse by Jesus that focuses on the imagery of the good shepherd and the sheep. While there is no direct narrative connection between the healing of the blind man in chapter 9 and the discourse in chapter 10, the themes of spiritual blindness, recognizing Jesus as the Messiah, and following him are consistent throughout both chapters. Chapter 10 of the Gospel of John is known for the Good Shepherd Discourse, where Jesus describes himself as the Good Shepherd who knows his sheep, protects them, and lays down his life for them. The discourse serves as a metaphorical explanation of Jesus' relationship with his followers and highlights the idea of Jesus being the shepherd of his people. Overall, while there is not a direct narrative continuation from chapter 9 to chapter 10 in terms of a single story, the themes and teachings in these chapters are interconnected and built upon one an- and they build upon one another within the broader context of the Gospel of John. So they claim there's not a direct narrative continuation. That's their claim. Everybody see that? Everybody understand that? Right? So what's view number one? No direct narrative continuation. That's view number one. View number two. Here comes view number two. The entire shepherd discourse is a direct response to the Pharisees' mistreatment of one of Jesus' sheep, the blind man in John 9. There is no natural break between John 9 and 10. In fact, that particular chapter break was probably improperly placed. 
A commentary from the early 1500s reads like this. The person who divided the text of the gospel into chapters was not very judicious in beginning John 10 here. Jesus goes directly from condemning the Pharisees in John 9 to a set of parables that contrasted his leadership with that of the Pharisees. Okay, everyone needs to pay close attention because now we're getting somewhere. All right, view number one, no direct continuation. View number two, direct continuation. In fact, it's a direct continuation that establishes John 10 as being about Jesus contrasting himself with the Pharisees. Oh, that would be pretty important, would it not? All right, that would be pretty important. All right, so what's view number one? No direct narrative continuation. View number two? Direct continuation. And chapter 10, Jesus is contrasting himself with the Pharisees. And that all starts because of something that happens in chapter 9. Now, what do you think? Which one, which view do you like? Which view do you like? All right. Okay, we think it's a continuation. All right, I'm going to throw out an idea. Now, this is not found in any book. This is me. Oh, no, 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 no. He didn't do any of that. No, he didn't do any of this. No, 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 he didn't do it. And most churches in uh, Abilene who preach John 10, 10 is about Satan is not doing anything that we're about to do, okay? Because why? Why do we do this? We do theology. We don't simply teach theology. You got to do it. You got to work on it, right? You got to work on it, okay? We create hypotheses and we test them and we challenge them. I don't know why every church wouldn't want to do this, but obviously, look around. (laughs) This is not the popular way to do church, okay? But that's okay. I don't really care what's popular, right? I want you to look at verses 19 to 21. John 10, 19 to 21. All right? Now, when I read verses 19 to 21... What should happen is everyone should go, ooh. Oh, in fact, if you were like some churches, you should all do this. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Okay, okay, here we go. At the end of the discourse, that starts at least in chapter 10, 1, right? Verse 19, there was a division, therefore, again, among the Jews for these sayings. And many of them said, he hath a devil and is mad. Why hear ye him? Others said, these are not the words of him that hath a uh, a devil. Can a devil open the eyes of, of the blind? And it was at Jerusalem, the feast of the dedication, and it was winter, and Jesus walked into the temple of Solomon's porch. Okay, then it continues. But note, there was a division, therefore, again, among the Jews for these sayings. And many of them said he has a devil and is mad. And others said these are not the words of him that hath a devil. Can a devil open the eyes of? Did everyone read that verse again? Now, wait a minute. Where did that come from? Where did that come from? Clearly, these people didn't just show up in chapter 10 and Jesus was like, hey guys, I'm going to tell you a story 
or stories about me being the good shepherd. No, he's obviously talking to people who had something, they know something about him doing what? Healing the blind. And Jesus' words seem to be some kind of dealing with the healing with the blind because they're like immediately are like, wait a minute, what's going on? Does everyone see that? Please, circle 21. Others said, these are not the words of him that hath the devil. Can a devil open the eyes of the blind? This, this immediately to me connects it, not to 10.1, this connects it to chapter 9, verse 1, where we read these words. And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was, oh, wow. 9.1 has a blind man. Chapter 10, verse I just read it. 21 has people talking about a blind man. That means chapter 9 is connected to chapter 10. I say there's a continuation. Narratively speaking, there's continuity. All right? I'm going to go back to the the commentary from the 1500s. All right? Now, here we go. Now, if they are connected... Okay, listen. I want to make sure everybody listens to what I'm doing. I know there's a part of me coming across being very assertive and dogmatic, but I also try to constantly remind myself that we're doing a hypothesis here, right? So I'm going to state it now in a more questioning way. If they are connected, then can we argue that chapter 10 is possibly Jesus contrasting himself with something that relates to what goes on in chapter 9. In other words, Jesus is just not telling this story out of, for no reason. There's got to be something connected to chapter 9. So guess what we need to do? we got to go to chapter 9. Now here's what we're going to do. In chapter 9, there's a long narrative that starts off with someone who is what? Chapter 9, verse 1? Blind. So here's what we're going to do. In chapter 9, verse 1, in this narrative... We're going to look for, are you ready for this? These are very important words. Antagonist, protagonist. You know I love storytelling, right? I love to analyze storytelling, all right? When we talk about the antagonist, what are we looking for in a story, in a narrative? Okay, the one who opposes the protagonist. That's the conflict, The antagonist and the protagonist, right? And all good storytelling, there is what? A protagonist and an antagonist, right? They they have to be there, correct? That's where your, what comes in? Conflict. And most stories aren't very good if there's no conflict. There's got to be conflict. Okay? Still good storytelling. I love storytelling, right? I love it. I love to see how stories are developed. I love to see the imagery. I love everything about storytelling. So in chapter 9, we're going to have, well, now now because of time, it's already almost noon. So I'm going to have to go through chapter 9 quick, all right? So I would like to read it and work through this. You're going to have to just take notes, all right? Are you ready? Here we go. Chapters 9, 1 through, chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. What happens in chapter 9, verses 1 through 7? I'm going to call this the, now you may not like my outline, 
I threw this, I'm, I'm, th- I'm throwing this together not in like a very polished way. I'm doing this as if we're working together because I, I love to throw the idea out and then we try to do what? We try to polish up the outline because I like to get y'all involved because sometimes I'm like, what in the world are you guys talking about? Which is always fun to me. Okay, but in this particular case, I'm just gonna throw out and then you can, you can work on it later. Are you ready? Chapter nine, verses one through seven. I'm gonna call this the event that causes the conflict. Because Jesus passed by, he sees a man which is blind from his birth, his disciples asking him, saying, uh, Master, who did sin, the man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus says, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. Now, there's enough philosophical problems there that we could spend a couple of years on. I must work the works of him that sent me, while it is day that night cometh when no man can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground, made clay of his spittle and anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. We could we could take apart verse 6 for six months. There's a lot going. Why is he spitting on the clay? So much spiritual symbolism. And I mean, we could go all day on this, okay? But he spits. Then what happens? He tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam, right? Which by interpretation sent. He went his way, therefore washed and came seeing. All right, that, uh, that's verse seven. So what is the event that's going to cause the conflict? Jesus heals a blind man. That's the event. That's the thing that's going to spark everything. Right? You think everyone should be what? Happy. You think everyone should be happy. Okay, but it's amazing how sometimes within Christianity, we're not happy over the things we should be happy about. Okay, all right. So there we go. Now, what happens in verses eight through 12? The neighbors, therefore, and they which before had seen him, that he was blind, said, It's not this he that sat and begged. Some said, This is he. Others said, It is like him. But he said, I am he. Therefore said they unto him, How were thine eyes open? And he said, A man that is called Jesus made clay, anointed my eyes, go to the pool of Siloam, wash. And I went and washed, and I received sight. And in verse 12, they said unto him, Where is he? He said, I know not. So I'm going to say we have the event that causes the conflict. And then we have the questions and confusion before the conflict. They're, they're not really having conflict yet, are they? They're just kind of confused. Like, wait, is this the guy? Wait, where's, what happened? There's just a little questions before the conflict. So far, so good? Now what happens, now verses 13 to 34 is a large section. What starts in verse 13? They brought to the... Dun, 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 dun. The Pharisees have shown up. The Pharisees are whom? The religious leaders. And we're going to refer to them as the antagonist. Because immediately what happens? They brought to the Pharisees, and it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened the eyes. Then again, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He said unto him, he had put clay. Therefore, said some of the Pharisees, the man is not of God, because he keepeth not the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? And now conflict is arising. They're not happy about the situation, right? Go all the way down to verse 34. They answered and said unto him, Thou wast altogether born in sins. Dost thou teach us? They cast him out. 
the Pharisees now are ticked off. The guy who's healed is kicked out. He's excommunicated. How dare he get his eyesight back? How dare he do that? We don't want that. Some people in the church don't want anyone to be forgiven. They don't want someone to have salvation. They'd rather do the condemning than the forgiving. They would rather do the condemning than the restoring. Like when someone makes a big enough mistake, we want destruction in the end. We don't want restoration and healing. Why is that? And then if someone is restored or healed, they're like, oh, well, they should have never been. Like, okay, well, I'm glad that you're so perfect. Okay. But we should be glad, shouldn't we? Okay, well, okay, maybe I'm the only one who thinks so. Okay, okay. I, at least I think so. All right. So that's, that's, that's the conflict. So we have the event that causes it, 9, 1 through 7. We have the questions and confusion, 9, 8 through 12. And we have the conflict, 9, 13 through 34. Let me make it very clear. Who is the contest with? The Pharisees. Not Satan. Not Satan. In fact, anyone's going to be accused of, of having a devil. It's Jesus who's being accused of having a devil. Right? But his issue is with the religious leaders. So far, so good. Then 35 to 41, I have no clue what we do with this. But Jesus heard that they had cast him out. So Jesus hears, whoa, the guy I healed just got excommunicated. So he goes and finds him and he goes, does thou believe on the son of God? I'm going to call 35 to 41 the spiritual condition. Jesus has healed the physical condition. Now he goes back to talks about to the guy to do what? Takes care of his spiritual condition. Does that make, is everyone okay with that? Right? Now, this is very important, right? Uh, Jesus said unto them, if you were, now look, look at verse 40. This is so important. And some of the Pharisees which were with heard these words and said unto him, are we blind also? Now, immediately, please note, we have, a, we have a shift in what's happening. We've been talking about physical blindness. Now, they're like, are we blind? Clearly, Jesus is not saying they're blind physically. And what does Jesus say in the last verse of chapter 9? If you were blind, you should have no sin. But now you say, we see, therefore your sin remaineth. Now he's dealing with spiritual issues. Now we have spiritual issues. And who is the last people he talks to at the end of chapter 9? Is he having a discussion with Satan? No, he is not having a discussion with Satan. He's having a discussion with the Pharisees. Now immediately, what does he do in chapter 10? I'm going to say chapter 10 verses 1 through 21 is the response Jesus is going to give a response to the Pharisees in great detail. Who is he giving a response to? The Pharisees. And what does he do in this section? Well, most believe what he does here is he offers, some will refer to them as three parables. You could call them three illustrations. Look at the first one. He goes, Verily, verily, I see unto you, he that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way of the same as a thief and a robber. But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porteth open, and the sheep hear his voice, and call his own sheep by name, and leadeth them out. And when he put forth his own sheep, he goeth before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And a stranger will they not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers. Now immediately, 
Jesus is doing what? He's drawing a contrast. And who could that contrast be between? Himself and the religious leaders of Israel. Not about Satan. He's not talking about Satan. He's talking about the religious leaders. Then look what he does in verse 7. Verse 6, this parable spake Jesus unto the, who's the them? The Pharisees. But they understood not what things they were which he spake unto them. So they don't understand. So it's almost like Jesus tells this first story and they're like doing what? Who, who, who broke in? Who, who, what? Do I? They're blind. Thank you. That's how chapter 9 ends. They, they don't get it because they are spiritually blind. They're like, we don't, what was he talking about? What is he talking about? And let me tell you, preachers who preach John 10, they're just as blind as the Pharisees because they don't see what this is actually about. So then what does he do in verse 7? Then he, then Jesus said unto them. Who is it them? The Pharisees. And then what does he do in verse 7 through 10? Verily I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever come before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not hear. Wait, there's the thieves and robbers. The thieves and robbers who came before him. Who are the thieves and robbers that came before him? The spiritual leaders of Israel. Oh, wait. Oh, oh, this is not even that hard to figure out. Even those without a seminary education can figure it out. See, I've told you, seminary is an absolute waste of money. People go to seminary and get in debt and they can't read John 10.10. You know what the number one thing preachers need to do is not go to seminary. They need to go back to elementary school where you learn how to read and take reading comprehension tests. Don't everyone get offended at me. That's what Augustine said. Remember when we looked at his book on hermeneutics? Where do you learn how to interpret scripture? Where you learn to read. Okay, wait. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and pastor. The thief cometh not but to steal, kill, and destroy. I come that they may have life and they may have life abundantly. He didn't jump in chapter 10 and verse 10 and jump to Satan. He's contrasting himself with whom? The religious leaders who do what? Kill, steal, and destroy. That's the point here. Then what does he do in verses 11 through 18? I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. He contrasts himself with whom? The hirelings, the the religious leaders. Can, can everyone see that? Does everyone, can, can everyone comprehend that and realize that? Okay. I, I cannot stress the importance of this. And, and uh, I mean, I can, only, I, can, I can try as much as possible to try to show you the contrast. But the contrast, I think, is, is absolutely clear here. All right? In fact, let me, let me do this. Um, I don't know if I can. I, I, um, I don't know if I can. Oh, hang on. Do what? Well, well, Satan may show up in John 9, but, or in, and later in John, but in here it's not there. So here's what I want, uh, want to do. I don't have time to, to go all into this, and I can't uh, access my notes because I forgot that. Uh, 
there, there's no internet, which is, which is frustrating because I had a bunch I wanted to get into. Okay, but, but let's do this. Oh, well, we don't even have time to be able to look at this. Let me, let me just say this. Over and over and over, not over, multiple times, I think in Isaiah and in Ezekiel, thieves and robbers and these kinds of ideas were used to describe the false prophets and the religious leaders of Israel who did not care for the sheep, but they fed upon the sheep. They misused the sheep. In fact, I think, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Look at Ezekiel. I'm going from memory here. Um, yeah, I think, uh, I think it's, well, we could go, we could go through all of chapter 36, I believe, I believe 36, and I also believe, um, there's had some other chapters in, uh, the book of Ezekiel where he contrasts the, uh, false prophets and how they treat the people of Israel. All right. Okay. So, if we need to, we can come back to it. But let me just try to articulate it this way, okay? Before I try to try to find all of the passages. I had them all written down, but I can't access them. Okay, so, let's at least establish this, all right? Before we run out of time. All right, so everybody with me? Here we go. Everybody ready? John 10.10 is a part of a discourse. That discourse, at the bare minimum, takes us back to chapter 10, verse 1. However, when we read further down in chapter 10, they mention a blind man. That immediately takes us to chapter 9, verse 1. Chapter 9, verse 1 begins to give us an event that occurs. Yes? That event becomes the source and what's going to become the source of the conflict, does it not? Okay? And then that... That conflict, okay, that conflict, I don't know what that was, okay, the, that conflict, that conflict then uh, gives, or the event that causes the conflict then leads to questions and confusion before the conflict, which then gives us the conflict in chapter 9, 13 through 34, then Jesus talks about the spiritual condition, and then in chapter 10, verses 1 through 21, he gives and lays out what? His response. His response is broken into three parables. In these three parables, Jesus is doing what? He is contrasting himself with the religious leaders. He is borrowing imagery that comes from Ezekiel and Isaiah. Because in Isaiah... In Ezekiel, there are sections where Jesus, where God talks about the false prophets and those religious leaders that were doing what to the people? They were like thieves. They were like, I think they're even referred to as thieves. They refer to them robbers. They're, I think they're called thieves and robbers in Ezekiel. Okay? All right? I believe they are. I wish I could have... Uh, I can't, I completely forgot that I had no internet because I could have just, I had all my notes all laid out nice and neat and I can't, I can't get to it, okay? They're locked right there. So I'm trying to go from memory. And in fact, if we can, does anyone have, does anyone know where in Ezekiel where we see that language of thieves, robbers, and, and, and false shepherds? Okay, let's see if we can find it relatively quick. False shepherds, thieves, robbers, 
Uh, probably. You may look at sh- uh, false shepherds. Okay, I don't know if that's probably what we're looking for. Okay, yeah, that's... Okay, that, uh, we, we can look at uh, thieves. We can look at uh, shepherds, false shepherds. Maybe Isaiah. Okay. All right, so maybe we won't be able to find it. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. But the point is, and I really wanted to drive the point home a little better than this, okay? But unfortunately, you know, everything is locked up now. Um, The point is, I will be able to demonstrate, if we will, I'll come back to it tonight to demonstrate this. Jesus is borrowing from the Old Testament, Isaiah and Ezekiel, whether we can find it or not. Trust me, it's there. There's plenty of passages to point them all out, right? Okay, but I'll have to sit there and start skimming and trying to look, which will ruin the whole sermon. So you're going to have to take my word for it. You can, you can look them up and challenging me because I'm only giving you the hypotheses. Jesus is borrowing from that imagery. And what he is saying is that the Pharisees are the religious leaders who are what? They're the robbers. They're the thieves. They're the false shepherds. He's the good shepherd. They're the false shepherd. Because there's an entire chapter, I think it's in Ezekiel, where he contrasts the false shepherds. Or maybe it's in Isaiah, where he, he contrasts, hey, this is what the false shepherds do. They prey upon the people. They do this. They do this. Jesus is borrowing that language for that enti- all those three parables. He's contrasting himself. He's the good shepherd. They are the false shepherds. They are the thieves. They are the robbers. He's the one who's doing it. He is the one that the sheep listen to. He comes to give his life for the sheep. He doesn't come to take. He comes to give. He doesn't come to steal. He comes to provide. He doesn't come to kill. He comes to give life. He is drawing the contrast. It has nothing to do with Satan. And to put Satan there is a complete misreading of what? Of the entire scripture. You can't just grab Satan and put him wherever it makes you feel good. Why churches do this, I have no idea. Like, we can, I can go back, I can show you, like, it, it's just nobody had that interpretation. And then all of a sudden it showed up, and then some mainstream people started utilizing it, and then guess what? And you know what, you know what this is? And this is, this is going to tick off some Protestants. We condemn Catholics for their belief in oral tradition. And we believe the oral tradition doesn't matter because we have the only tradition that matters, the word of God. Protestants have their own oral tradition. It's called sermons. It's called commentaries. And those sermons and commentaries become the tradition that we do what? That supersede the word of God. And that's what Jesus condemned the Pharisees for. That's what we condemn Catholics for. We're no better. We have our own oral tradition. Those are the sermons and teaching that's been handed down over time. 
that those sermons and teaching become our authority, even though we claim that this is the authority. And how does this get replaced? Preaching and teaching. And the word of God gets hid behind it. And we claim that we're learning the Bible. No, that's why you have to be in a church that doesn't learn theology. So it had to be in a church that does theology where we can test the oral tradition. And we just tested the oral tradition. And that oral tradition just did what? We just literally demonstrated that, the, that Jesus is borrowing from the Old Testament. That's what he's borrowing from. And as a result of borrowing from that, they would have understood immediately what he is talking about. Yes? All right. And, uh, and see here, I'm going to look here, just see if I can find it really quick. All right. Because now it bothers me that I could not get to my notes. Okay. I did pretty good from memory, though, for a lot of that. Okay. But, um, yeah, they don't have it here. Okay. Ezekiel 14. Is that the whole, is that a chapter about it? Okay. Yeah, I don't know if, uh, we'd have to figure out who, uh, okay, look at uh, Ezekiel 13. Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel that prophesy and say unto them that uh, prophesy out of their own hearts. Hear the word of the Lord. Thou, uh, Thus saith the Lord God, woe unto the foolish prophets that follow their own spirits and have seen nothing. O Israel, thy prophets are like the foxes in the deserts. You have not gone up in the gaps, neither made the hedge for the house of Israel to stand in the battle of the day of the Lord. They have seen vanity and lying divination, saying the Lord. They have not. So he immediately goes after whom here? The false prophets. The false prophets. And what have they done? They have not. Everything about them is what? Devastating and destructive to whom? To Israel, all right? So we at least get the basic uh, concept right there, okay? Um, and then, uh, well, in chapter 14, he kind of carries the same idea as well. He carries the same idea um, and, and, and this, because the same concept shows up. These are the people that, God, that Jesus is contrasting himself with, all right? Does that make sense? All right, and then we, we could go and we could look up more scriptures, but I, I, I can you know, give you the best that I can right there. All right, the best that I can right there. All right, any questions? All right, all right. I wanted, I had like oh, four very important points, but that's okay. So let's do this just for memory. All right, let's do this. Here's what I want you to take from it. You right, ready? Number one, you cannot rely on the oral tradition of Protestantism. You cannot rely on sermons and commentaries and what people tell you. You cannot rely on that, right? Number one, don't rely on oral tradition. Number two, you're responsible to do what? Study, question, put forth hypotheses, test, and try to come up with the truth. And if you think about it, isn't it kind of ironic that a text where Jesus is contrasting himself with the religious leaders, and who's wrong in the text? The religious leaders, that now religious leaders have taken that very text, misapplied the text, and misused the text to be about Satan. What should it be more about? As a religious leader, am I a religious leader 
like they were a religious leader? Or am I pointing people to the good shepherd, the door? And, but see, that would make us look at ourselves. We don't want to look at ourselves because it's always easier to look at whom? The devil made me do it. Isn't it kind of ironic in a passage that's about religious leaders, we turn it into about <laughs> Satan so that we can focus on Satan and not ourselves? I find that kind of ironic. I think if, if Satan was going to get us to do something, that'd probably be a good thing that he would do, right? Because if you focus on me, then you're not focusing on yourself. And if you're not focusing on yourself, you think you're better than you actually are, meaning that you become blind. And that kind of the, oh, wow. And wasn't the religious leaders blind? Yeah, that's, the irony there is pretty thick, is it not? All right, we'll stop right there. If we need to, we'll uh, look at some of the, um, we'll see what we'll do tonight. Maybe we'll look at some of the, the passages tonight so that we can drive this point home a little bit better. But I think at least, that got us pretty close, did it not? I, I apologize. I just forgot that we didn't have internet. So I'm like, up, oh, up. Oh. I can't get there. I can't get to what I need to. All right. But I think we did pretty good. Right. I think some of those Old Testament passages would have driven it home. But just trust me, Jesus is using that language. They, they would have known the language he's using. They wouldn't have been like, he's talking. To, in fact, if he was talking about the devil, the whole, uh, the whole uh, narrative falls apart, right? They would have been like, he's not talking about us. He's talking about the devil. No, he's trying to show them, you're the thieves, you're the robbers, you're the one killing the sheep, just like you treated that blind man. If he's talking about Satan, hey, oh, you're right, you're right, Jesus, Satan is bad. That's not how they would have under, that would make no sense in the narrative. Can we agree to that? It has to be about the Pharisees or it makes literally no sense. All right, let's stop right there. Lord God, we come before you this afternoon. Lord, sometimes things don't always work out the way I want in a sermon. But Lord, I pray that this will at least get us close to considering this very important chapter in a way that corrects probably everyone in this room, including me, have misinterpreted this and misread this in the past. And that means there's probably new passages that we will need to continue to work on in the future. Forgive us for our mishandling of your word. Help us learn to read it more accurately so that we do not misapply it and, well, teach other people wrong things about it. We ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,